Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Scott Phillips may be the most acclaimed novelist living in St. Louis today. He's best known for The Ice Harvest. That was a New York Times notable book and also, of course, a movie. The movie was directed by Wash U graduate Harold Ramis. Scott has written six books since then, and the sixth just made its debut last week. And he's here with us today to talk about it. So, Scott Phillips, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Actually, it's my ninth. Ninth? Yeah. How come they only have uh, seven listed well, here? My publisher did not. Um, my publisher didn't realize that I had uh, a collection of short stories out, which is uh, and and uh, a science fiction novel. It came out from a small publisher called Concord Free Press, okay. um, which is a very unusual and interesting outfit uh, in Concord, Massachusetts. And uh, they're should... publishing sci-fi. Well, they publish all kinds of things. They're a really interesting outfit. They 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 are a nonprofit. And they, I, I encourage you to look them up. Uh, I encourage you, all of you, uh, to, to Google Concord Free Press. Um, and uh, it's a really wonderful operation. I'm going to have to do this. And I do stand corrected. So this is now your ninth book. I believe this is my ninth, yeah. Okay. The, the short story collection was called um, Rum, Sodomy, and False Eyelashes, which is a... Uh, which is a Churchill reference, uh, but when did Churchill talk about rum, sodomy, and false eyelashes? Well, he said that the British Navy, the history of the British Navy, was one of rum, sodomy, and the lash. And, <laughs> and you uh, turned it into false eyelashes, right? And there is a story that involves rum, sodomy, and a false eyelash. Okay, in in, in the collection. Um, and uh, I should say that Stone of Fitch, the publisher, and I were very proud. That we got the word sodomy on the front page of the notoriously prim uh, Boston Globe. Good work. Yeah. I feel yeah. like when I say you're the most acclaimed novelist of this city, it's things like that that prove <laughs> my point. Well, I think it's actually Ridley Pearson. Probably, you know, he has moved. Did he? I didn't yes. Know See, we didn't even Nobody have to have any. a head-to-head. Nobody tells me yeah. anything. Ridley was in our studio a couple months ago, and, and mm-hmm. he told us that he had left St. Louis, I believe, uh, more than a year ago. We were very oh, sad. Yeah. He continues yeah. to come back a lot. But, yeah. but yeah. you're now the guy. Well, so, yes, go. let At others least, fight you for that no. crown. <laughs> well, John Lutz. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Scott's going to keep coming up with other people better than him, but I refuse to believe it because I'm a fan. And this new book, it's called That Left Turn at Albuquerque. Right. This is definitely a Scott Phillips novel yes. in that I'm wondering, mm. I'm almost done with this book. Are there any good guys in it? Because I haven't gotten to any yet. You know, I the funny thing is that I kind of thought uh, that uh, Rigby, who's the chief scumbag, uh, is is the lawyer, and he's the definitely the, uh, the the worst character of the bunch. He's very bad. But I, I always found I, I as I was writing it, I th- I thought his wife Paula was a pretty sympathetic character. Kind um, of people people have disagreed with me though. Yes, I'm I'm not feeling much sympathy for Paula, but mm. I I will continue to see where this plot takes me, and I don't want to give any spoilers yeah. today. But yeah. but yeah, there's a lot of bad guys in this book, um, and you I've got to say you seem like such a nice guy. Where does this dark perspective <laughs> well, come from? It's deep seated. Uh, when I was a child, I was my mom was always fascinated with crime. And we used to drive past this one house. Um, we would go to the dentist downtown, which is Wichita, Kansas, and we would drive past this one-way street on our way home, First Street, and there was this one house, and my mom would always point it out and say, that's where my friend's brother murdered his girlfriend and buried her under the porch. <laughs> and um, so this is when I was a little kid. And yeah. um, years later, I, I asked, as an adult, I asked my mom, I said, which house was that where your friend... You know, your friend's brother killed his girlfriend and buried her under the porch. And she said, how do you know about that? And I said, well, you used to point it out to me. 
when I was a little kid when we'd drive, you know, home from downtown. Yeah. She said, I never would have told you that when you were a little boy. And I said, Mom, how do I know about it? Yeah. And I remember when Winnie Ruth Judd, the trunk murderess from the 1930s, escaped from the mental hospital in the 70s. My mom was just fascinated. And she talked about Winnie Ruth Judd. And so I was, you know, probably the only 10-year-old in America who knew who Winnie Ruth Judd was. Yeah. Um, for the record, she was a notorious trunk murderess. She, That's right. She, she uh, chopped up her roommates and uh, mailed them. Um, but I, I have always been interested in that kind of stuff. Uh, and... Um, I don't know. And and so you're you know you're interested in these these very dark crimes and yet I also get the sense that it kind of amuses you. Am I right in that? Well, I have known people who were a little bit crooked. Mm-hmm. And they're fascinating people. Uh, mostly they're kind of dumb, not always, but a lot of them in, in the ones that I've known have been kind of dumb and some of them have been kind of funny. Yeah. Um they're never as smart as they think they are. They're never as smart as they think they are. And the ones who are smart eventually quit. You know, I've known, I've had actually a lot of friends who are, uh, who have done time. And the thing that they all have in common is one, one, of, one thing is they're almost all of them are writers. Uh, and <laughs> writers who've done time. This is such a great well, that's diagram. How I, yeah, that's mostly how I got to know them. But the one thing, the other thing they have in common was in, in jail. They realized that they didn't, didn't want to go to jail anymore. <laughs> you know, they, they realized that. I the consequences friend, just weren't worth it. Yeah, I, I, my friend Les Edgerton is a, uh, you know, he was a burglar. And uh, while he was in prison, state prison for the first time, he realized, I really don't like prison. So he learned a trade. And uh, he learned how to cut hair. And he and his wife have a, you know, thriving business up in Indiana. And, but he's also a writer, a very fine writer. So you, so you have a lot of friends who were low lives and have gone straight, and some of them took up the writing trade. This, this sounds like a fun gang. Trade. Oh, you, well, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, my friend Patrick O'Neill actually wrote a memoir, a very good memoir. I can't think of the name of it right now. Sorry, Patrick. Um, <laughs> but uh, he was a bank robber. Wow. Okay, your and, friends are a lot more interesting than mine. Well, and I, I only know him because uh, our... A mutual friend um, was his publisher in France and asked me to write an introduction to the French edition of his book. And I read it and I thought, this guy's a, this guy's a great writer, but he's also got a fascinating story. Yeah. So Now, for you, um, do you have any sort of like dark path where suddenly you realized, you know what? I don't want to do the thing that's going to put me in prison. I'm going to go be a writer. Or have you always had that no, literary, not I, criminal bent? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I originally thought I wanted to be a science fiction writer. Uh, when I was young, and my first novel, unpublished and unpublishable, uh, was a science fiction book. Okay. And uh, what happened was I ended up getting involved with some screenwriting. My book, Rake, is a heavily fictionalized account of the time that my old friend Lane Davies, who was an actor, became very famous in France, where I was living at the mm-hmm. time, and he decided we would make a movie. And... Um, so we got involved in screenwriting and trying to get money and, uh, you know, a, a famous arms dealer who I will not name was involved. We, he had an actri- a, a daughter who wanted to be an actress. And Wow, you know some great people. Yeah, yeah. and I, I remember saying, you know, I don't know how I feel about taking this guy's money because it's, it's, really, it's dirty money. And I actually put this in the book. And Lane said to me, yes, but we're going to take the bad money and use it to make art and turn it into good money. I can buy that argument. 
well, he, as it turned out, he didn't really want his daughter to be an actress, so he never got any money. And the movie never got made, but uh, that convinced me to move to Los Angeles. And uh, by that time, I had met a bunch of crime writers. I, I knew James Lee Burke, actually. I've known Jim for 40 years. He was my, uh, I had him for a freshman comp at Wichita State. And uh, so I knew Jim Crumley, and I knew some people who wrote crime. And so um, after my first, I, I wrote uh, this with David Maisel, I wrote this movie called Crosscut, which I don't recommend that you track down. It's really not very good. But um, after that experience, I thought, you know, I'm just going to go back to and try and write another novel. Mm -hmm. And because I knew all these people who published crime novels, you know, there was one. And it. So that's what led you into to following that as a topic. Yes, basically. And I, I had a great opening for a crime novel, which was one day I had gone to get a haircut. And my barber, who was an old friend of mine, said, you know, I'm running late. Why don't you go get a beer? And it was about 5 o'clock. So I thought, yeah, all right. So I went over to this bar called The Spot, which is long gone. And there was a guy sitting at the bar so drunk that he caught his hair on fire. <laughs> I, sh I shouldn't laugh. I'm sorry. And, I take back and, my laugh. Well, it's, no, it was hilarious. You know, the guy and the bartender took his cigarettes and his matches away and gave him another drink. <laughs> and so I remember thinking, I'm going to write that down. And so when I finally did write it, that was the start of my first book. You can uh, see how that would be a great writing exercise. Like, that's, yeah. a, that's an opening that will take you in any number of great places. And I, I, I think one of, the, one of my tricks for writing fiction is if – if I've told an anecdote more than twice, it's probably something I should look at and think about fictionalizing. So that's how you became a crime writer. Um, one of the things I find myself wondering about you, you know, you were living in Paris, then you lived in Los Angeles. What brought you to St. Louis? Well, a desire to leave Los Angeles. It was actually, uh, it's Bruce Willis's fault. Oh. Uh, when they were first making Ice Harvest, um, we had it set up, we thought, Focus features. I, the funny thing is, I don't remember. Dean Pariso was the director at the time, and I don't remember who was going to play Charlie, but Diane Lane was going to play the femme fatale, mm. and that Connie Nielsen eventually played, and Billy Bob, the, the uh, Bruce Willis was going to play the Billy Bob Thornton role. And in the movies, you don't get paid the the real money until they start shooting. Mm -hmm. the, they call it first day of principal, and about a week before they were supposed to start shooting, I got a call from one of the producers saying, Bruce Willis dropped out. Mm -hmm. And I said, what does that mean? He says, he says, it means not this year. And I turned to my wife, and we were living in a condo, and the condo fees were now had gone up and up and up to the point where it was as expensive as our, uh, as our mortgage. And it was just killing us. And I said, you know, we got to get out of L.A. And she said, how about St. Louis? Just throwing a dart at a map, or well, did she, she have had a lived reason? here. She oh, used okay. to run the Edison Theater back in the eighties, oh, okay. and she was single at the time. But she th always thought it would be a good place to to raise a kid. Hmm. And our daughter was four at the time, and she'd visited St. Louis and really liked it. And it was close to both of our families. Yeah. So. And what she write about that? Was it a great place to raise a kid? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And yeah. a great place to write. And it, well, I think any place you, you can write any place. But <laughs> but yeah yeah it's a it. it it took me a while to get into the groove of the city, but once I did, yeah, I feel like I've lived here longer than I've lived 
anywhere as an adult. So, But so this new book, um, this is still set largely in Southern California, Ventura, um, of all right. places. Right. Uh, where, where I used to live. Okay, so. so that explains the Ventura angle. But, you know, there are some St. Louis scenes in here, and I, I have to get in in yeah. our last couple minutes. You managed to get in a dig on the Loop trolley. Well, yeah, when I, I, I actually read it at Meshuggah Cafe in the Loop. Uh, we had a noir at the bar. Uh, night. And uh, so I was reading it just a few doors down from where this particular chapter was taking place. And uh, when I read the part about the trolley, I said, this is now officially as excuse me, a historical novel. <laughs> because um, the trolley no longer runs. Right, right, right. Which um, I take no joy in that. But I'm not surprised. I was going to say, you, uh, Scott is on the record with me long before anyone saw a disaster coming. Scott knew that this trolley project was going to be a real failure. And I'm wondering how all the brightest people in the room, these, these politicians, all threw their back behind it. What did you see oh, that they didn't? I think they saw dollar signs and they saw Joe Edwards and were a little scared of Joe. And, uh, but I heard lots of people. You know, who who thought this this just the numbers don't crunch. People were saying Soto Voce, this is this is not gonna work. Yeah, yeah. They just didn't want to say it to reporters. Right, right. And you were saying it to anyone who would listen. I well, you know, like I say, I take no pleasure in it. Uh, but we you know, and when you consider the cost of the thing, you have to factor in all the cost to those businesses in the loop. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them closed, some of them had to move. Uh, you know, it was it was tough. It was, uh, yeah, for, it was all for a fantasy of a, you know, a, a meet me in St. Louis uh, kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah. So I don't but wanna... I did manage to put it into the book. So. You did, and I, I appreciate that as a St. Louis reader. But, you know, as I continue to read this book, I want you to leave our, our listeners with a thought on, on that left turn at Albuquerque. Um, will there be redemption here? Redemption, No. <laughs> But there is a resolution. A resolution. And uh, some of the characters get what they deserve and some of them get what they want. And that's not the same thing. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to finding out who I'm really enjoying this book so far. So, uh, Scott Phillips, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. And that book we're talking about, it's That Left Turn at Albuquerque. I know it's at Subterranean Books. It's at Left uh, Bank. Left Bank has it. The Novel Neighbor. Uh, I believe the Bookhouse has it. Uh, we've got a, so many great independent bookstores in St. Louis. It's just, it's almost embarrassing. So go support one yeah. and, and get Scott Phillips' new yeah. novel. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.